What's actually more important is having that longer term vision for what you want your company to be and applying that backwards to the customer feedback. So you have to translate those things over and say, okay, what's the answer? What would satisfy this thing the customer is asking for while meeting that longer term vision? Early on, you're really kind of looking at it like what's happening this month and what's happening in six years, right? There's like huge separation of distance, right? Anything in between that's fuzzy. And if you make the mistake of working on things that will take you a month or two months to do, you're going to lose that attention from your customers. You're gonna lose that beginning of, of, of excitement and you're gonna miss the mark. My name's John Egan. I'm a co-founder and CEO at Kintaba. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how John Egan set out to create the platform to bring order to the chaos of incident response. All this and more on Code Story. John Egan is a computer and electrical engineer by training. Early on, he got disillusioned by the idea of building robots because it was too slow for it. While he was working at Harvard, he was watching the early days of Y Combinator and told his wife that there was a movement going on and they should move to be a part of it. Startups weren't common then, so it was a risky move. But John found himself excited about being a part of it. Eventually, they did make the move, created a file transfer company, and ended up getting acquired by Facebook. Outside of tech, he's married with a four-year-old son. And for fun, he builds tools for himself, since he's not writing much code at his current venture. One of them is Postmortem.io, in addition to launching IRConf for incident responders. Post-Facebook, John set out to ask the question to his prior colleagues that had left about the tools that they missed the most. The tool that kept coming up in conversation was a tool to manage incidents. So he decided to build this platform, named after an ancient Japanese philosophy. This is the creation story of Kintaba. So Kintaba is an incident management and response platform. So there's a trend that's kind of taken hold back around like 2016 when Google published um, the SRE handbook. They published this for free. And they, for the first time, really outlined what their approach was internally to dealing with critical emergencies at the company. And this was really impactful because, right, every company is always on fire. I'm sure you do these interviews, you must hear from people every day talking about troubles, not just their successes. But it's only recent history that companies have really started to adopt a set of best practices for what to do when things go badly. The old world really looked like saying, well, our goal is not to have incidents, or there won't be incidents, or we're trying to knock them down to as low as but little as possible. That moment in 2016 was really powerful because it made everyone look at one of the most successful companies in the world, Google, and say, oh, they actually are expecting these things to continue to happen forever. They're not planning for incident zero. And this was something that I saw firsthand at Facebook as well. Facebook also adopted incident management really aggressively internally. And it actually sort of made me think that that was the standard. I kind of, you know, working working at Facebook out of a startup, you think, okay, at the startup, we were on fire and Facebook's more like everyone else. You know, they, they have a plan for these things. They have a whole process in place. And they've learned these processes 
from you know places like uh, like fire departments from from like the DoD from like places that are really dealing with fires all the time from the airline industry where a fire means loss of life and so when 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 I left Facebook back in about uh, uh, 2017 2018 um, we we went to all of our friends who had also left you know over the years and had gone to other unicorn startups and other companies and we we talked to them a lot about what were the tools that they missed. And the one that kept coming up was an internal tool at Facebook that managed incidents. And this was really an orchestration tool that was all about giving you access to the administrative overhead and process for dealing with an incident across the company. And critically, it was available to the entire organization. This wasn't an SRE tool. This wasn't a you know engineering tool. This was something that anyone in the company at any moment could say, well, what's on fire? And if there was something on fire, either be a responder and help and know where the conversation was happening for that resolution, um, be an observer and learn without having to send a bunch of emails out to everyone's managers saying, what's going on? Why are things bad? And then learn on the output of when an incident is, is resolved, what are the changes we're making systemically day to day, week to week, as we learn from these outages to make sure they don't happen again to become more, more powerful. And that's what Kintaba is really meant to be and where it's born from. It's this, uh, it, it's actually derived from the word kintsugi, which is a Japanese art form where you take broken pottery and you put it back together with golden inlay and then it becomes more valuable because of it. It's an entire art form. You can actually go buy kintsugi art, you know, online. And it was this beautiful imagery to me, right? Which is this, this idea that you're actually stronger for your scars. And that's what tools and processes that care about incident management are. They take into account the idea that each one of these major incidents is an opportunity for your company to become stronger and more resilient. And you're going to be better than your competition. What Kintaba really is, is it's a dashboard for all of your major fires that are happening and have happened in the past. And then it's a process orchestrator for making sure that the way you respond to these outages is consistent. Where do you go to have the conversation? Who are the people responding? What are their roles? How are those roles being assigned? Like where are the postmortems getting written? How do we make sure they get written? All of that lives inside of Kintaba. And the goal was, let's just provide this as an off-the-shelf solution so that every company, three people, 3,000 people, 30,000 people, can get the same kind of tooling value that these big fang companies are getting by building it for themselves. And that was really the genesis, and, uh, and it sort of took off from there. Well, tell me about the MVP. So that, that first product you built, how long did it take you to build, and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? So the initial thought was that the core of the product was going to be the dashboard and a collaboration space. Where do you go when the incident happens? Um, and so those were the first two things we built, which looking back, maybe that's a bit a bit difficult to go and say, okay, great, let's go build a full chat interface. That's the MVP. You know, I, sometimes I look back and I think, wow, that was, that was a bit of a, a high bar just to get out of the gate. But it was actually pretty important, you know, that that was the bar coming out of the gate because we really wanted Kintaba to be a little bit different from just a record keeping solution. We wanted it to be a real-time solution. It's the place you go and the place you work the problem, not just the place you go after the fact. And so it's pretty important for us that we come up with some approach to the collaborative interface. 
we just come off of another project we were working on that was more in the blockchain space and learned a lot about how we were going to do, you know, resilient and functional coding going forward. And I think Kintaba is primarily based on Node and Next.js and then backed by Kubernetes. So really the infrastructure for us gets to be very hands-off, right? It's a very self-sufficient, inherently resilient product from the bottom up. And a lot of the MVP had to do with that. It had to do with how do we do this as three people in a way that can make the company look like it's 100. And as soon as that started to work, we really started to shop it around aggressively. Um, in the past, I'd built products and, you know, we always said, we'll give it away, you know, for a year or two and, and work with people. And with Kentava, we really said that we need to charge on day one. The MVP has to be valuable on day one or else this space isn't real. Because it's one of those spaces where people will never disagree with you when you talk to them about it. You'll never go up to someone who builds a company or works in a company and say, wouldn't it be great if it was easy to put your fires out? The real test there, right? This is kind of a standard with, with SaaS products. The real test is, well, will you write me a check you know, of any amount of money, even a dollar, $5, $10, you know, to come and use this product. And so the MVP was really those two things. It was just the, the dashboard, an ability to create a new incident, and then a place to come in and collaborate. So you can imagine where it grew from there, right? We, we immediately had to go connect it to Slack because that's where people actually collaborate, et cetera, et cetera. But the MVP was that. It was very much those two pieces, web only. I think we had some integrations with Twilio to do notifications out over email and SMS to make sure we could attract responders you know, at the right moment. And then we went searching for customers. With any MVP, you got to make certain decisions and trade-offs. Tell me about those decisions and trade-offs you had to make in how you built it and in what, you know, features you were going to start with or cut, technical debt, anything like that, and how you coped with those decisions. There was so much we wanted in the MVP, which we're really just getting to the point of having. You know, incident response, being an effective, what I, what I keep calling it, an orchestration system, really means automations. It means on-call roles and, 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 and handoffs. It means post-mortem documents and notifications and emails going out with, with calendars. It means all of these things. And so, yeah, when, when we came out of the gate, we wanted all of these features. And we burning it down to just a couple of items really looked like trying to stack rank them both from a standpoint of difficulty as well as a standpoint of um, you know critical insight that it would give us right what are we learning by building each of these features and we had to be careful not to build features that were reliant on other features right because that's that's meaningless when you're building an MVP you need to know if the first level features work um, you know very much your zero to one and so and so the decision around like the dashboard was obvious, like because we wanted Kintaba to be a whole company product. And the thing that makes something a whole company product really is that dashboard. So that even if you're not a participant in incident response, we wanted to make sure that, you know, frontline salesperson, PR, marketing, CEO, everyone could go in and see what was happening. That was priority number one. So that easily made the cut. The, the chat interface was a tougher decision. Um, it was really weighing that versus having sort of a structured data input space, right? Where we just say, oh, maybe we'll just capture the data, right? We'll just give you a bunch of form fields to fill out, um, which is actually what a lot of other products kind of looked like that were coming into this space at the time. Um, and we, 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 we ultimately decided against it because of that point I made earlier, which was 
we really wanted the space to be alive. We wanted it to be the space that people go and interact, not just the space you go after the fact. And secondarily, we, we kind of walked through our values. And one of the really important ones was we wanted the barrier to filing incidents to be as low as possible, right? In the current world, if you have, in the non-tooled world, if you have an incident response process, it probably looks like a wiki page. And it's probably a really scary wiki page, right? It's like, or a notion doc you know it's like here's the 500 steps we follow when we have a major incident right terrifying stuff um and and when your incident response product looks like a bunch of structured data it's very similar to that it's like here's all the things you're going to fill out if you file an incident and the natural reaction to that is i don't want to file an incident right i don't i don't want these things in here but the reality of the space and what we'd learned you know at facebook and what google knows and netflix knows is that you actually want as many of these things as possible getting filed because then you'll catch them sooner because your barrier is lower you'll catch them at the sev3 and the sev2 level instead of waiting until your entire site's gone down and your whole your whole business is at risk um, and so we, we, we sort of made that decision straight out of the gate on the MVP. We said, okay, we're just going to do it. We're going to go build the collaborative space. We're going to make sure all the conversation information is logged. And then we're going to be able to benefit from that farther down the road in terms of capturing important moments and making sure they're pushed into the postmortem. And we're going to benefit from that by giving people an easier to use, more familiar experience. Um, in fact, when we launched the MVP and TechCrunch picked it up, the first piece of sort of backhanded compliment we got on, on Hacker News was, wow, this you know, visually kind of looks like Facebook or something. And, and, and we took that as a compliment. We were like, good, it should feel like something that isn't scary. It shouldn't feel like, you know, the tool you roll out to three or four SREs. So, okay, you've got your MVP, right? And um, how did you progress the product from there? And how did you mature it? And you kind of mentioned it earlier with the, okay, now you got to integrate it with Slack, right? But but even further, and to give it a little more, more context, um, how did you build your roadmap? And how did you decide, okay, this is the next most important thing to build? When you've got that first bit of product market fit and you've got your first customers and they start telling you what they want, right? Which they'll do. If you have any any degree of product market fit, you're going to get this just avalanche of, of, of feedback from, uh, from your customers. What's actually more important, I think, than having that short-term, you know, roadmap built in stone is having that longer term vision for what you want your company to be and applying that backwards to the customer feedback. Um, it's, it's, it's actually a pretty difficult thing to do because customers will ask you for really specific things, right? They'll come in and they'll say, there's no way for me to put this piece of structured data in. Like, I want this piece of structured data. Can you add a field? Right. And then you look at your long term vision. So, for example, for us, that long term vision being we want entire organizations to be using Cantava. We want everyone in the company to feel like it's an easy to use, comfortable experience. And we really don't like structured data because of that. Right. We don't want to say here are things that make it scarier. Here are more input fields. So you have to translate those things over and say, OK, what's the answer? What would satisfy this thing the customer is asking for while meeting that longer term vision for what we want the company to become? And I think that really builds your short-term roadmap. You can actually kind of just put together lists of customer requests, map them to long-term company vision, and then like equals short-term roadmap. Because you're going to be resource constrained early on, right? You're gonna have more of a problem of like, what do you have to cut out 
than anything else. And so you've got to be really careful with those decisions. And early on, you're really kind of looking at it like what's happening this month and what's happening in six years, right? There's like huge separation of distance, right? Anything in between that's fuzzy because you're going to learn a lot over that period. And if you make the mistake of working on things that will take you a month or two months to do, you're going to lose that attention from your customers. You're going to lose that beginning of, of, of excitement and you're going to miss the mark. Well, let's switch to team then. So how did you go about building your team and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? So we started very small and and, and we've stayed quite small, um, very purposefully. Uh, I believe really strongly in hiring people and, uh, and, and working with people who punch way above their weight from a standpoint of the amount of product and, 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 and effort they can put out day to day. And we do this without burnout. You know, we're not a 24-hour working company. We're, we're actually pretty strict around, um, you know, around, around normal working hours. But, you know, when you're picking things like co-founders, which is the first step to this, you're generally, you know, looking for uh, folks who are willing to really just roll with the changes that are going to happen. Um, in a large organization, it's easy to get feedback, you know, when you're when you're trying to find your footing. And it's one of the reasons big companies have trouble kind of doing major pivots is the organization thinks it's pointed one way and gets really hooked on that. And then, like, if you need to pivot inside of that because of new information, it's tough. It's a it's kind of a hit against everyone who's on the team and who's working. Whereas in um, in startups, that's just day to day. You're going to say, wow, this thing we, we've been putting the entire, say, week into is like completely wrong. Burn the code. Let's go a different direction. So initially, that's kind of step one is 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 folks who are really flexible. And Zach and Cole, my, my two co-founders, you know, fit, fit this bill perfectly. Zach and I uh, ran a company together before, so we, we knew each other for a long time. Cole, we'd worked really close with, closely with at Facebook. Um, it was just a fantastic architect um, and, and really, really capable in terms of building like I'd mentioned earlier, infrastructure that punches above its weight class that doesn't fall, even though it has a limited number of people behind it. Um, I think that's like step one. Step two then is hiring and hiring is really hard. Um, You know, hiring, you talk to most founders and they'll generally kind of give you the the current state of their team and they'll say, yeah, we've, we've hired the best. And they won't often talk about all the trouble they had getting to the best. Most founders I talk to go through, you know, series of hires and, and then, you know, uh, attrition immediately afterwards. Um, and we've gone through similar, you know, when, when we've when we've tried to hire people in and fit them into the team and found that there's not a perfect fit or otherwise getting to where we are now. Um, we're really just starting to find our footing and we still work really heavily with contractors because of how much we value um, the flexibility uh, of the folks who we work with um, in terms of, you know, let's make sure this works really well. Let's make sure you're really on board. Let's make sure it's going to be the right fit before we'll kind of bring anyone on full time. So, you know, that that's really high level. It's kind of wishy-washy answer, but hiring in the early days is sort of wishy-washy. You're like 50% human relationship because you're going to have a very human relationship with these people. It's not going to be a manager employee relationship. Um, and then 50%, you know, technical capability, uh, and drive and alignment with vision. Um, and so testing for all of that is not a perfect science, unfortunately. And oftentimes you, you need to get the person in before you learn whether or not it's going to be the right person. Um, 
And there are a bunch of old blog posts from from startups where they had like hacky ways to do that. And and a lot of those have kind of disappeared because it's, you know, it's questionable labor practices sometimes. Come in, do a bunch of work, and then, you know, we don't hire you. We try not to do that. Um, but but yeah, that's sort of the approach we've generally taken is we, we look for, you know, we really look for friends at this point, I think is the right way to describe it. You want to work with your friends. Um, I think I'd mentioned to you off camera before this a little bit that, that running a startup during the pandemic is, is a much more isolating experience than historically running a startup has been. Historically running a startup has been, we're all in a room together. Um, you know, Y Combinator used to be, you'd rent a, a room in Mountain View somewhere and that was your office, that was your home. Those were the people you lived with. They were the people you cooked with. You know, it was a, a little boiler room of these things. And, um, you know, nowadays it's not, you know, nowadays it's a Slack room. Of, of these individuals. Um, and I actually think the way you hire is starting to change because of that as well. Let's, let's switch to scalability. And you, you answered this in your MVP uh, answer, but I want to give it full space because I, wanna, I want to understand uh, your approach. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or are you fighting this as you grow and gain traction? Kintaba has really been built for scale from day one. Um, it was one of the things we did better with this startup than I think any other product or startup space I've worked in before. Um, and it's really uh, us standing on the shoulders of giants more than us being brilliant, right? The infrastructure that you build on, it's really become, you know, uh, almost consistent across companies. Like everyone's sort of building on the same stuff now. I remember when we built the first company, you know, it was all a hodgepodge. I think Heroku had come, had had sort of just recently been acquired by Salesforce. If, if you want to do like timing, this was back in like 2013, and that was about the closest there was to sort of auto scalability. Um, you were still kind of manually provisioning on AWS, and you were sort of managing your web servers. You were certainly managing your own security. Um, these things were pretty scary. Whereas whereas today, you know, if you want to go and build a pretty reliable and resilient stack. I'm not going to say it's easy, but it's reasonably well documented um, in terms of, of what you ought to go and build on. And and we built, I think we, we chose some winners partially because of our experience with them, but also partially because that was, um, you know, kind of what you could read online. But, you know, Node and Next are just fantastic front end uh, experiences. And on the back end, Kubernetes has a huge community behind it. It's well supported. It was becoming even better supported at the time that, that we, we came onto it. I think Azure had just really started doing AKS successfully, um, which is what we're built on top of. Um, and these things really just kind of give us auto scaling uh, out of the box. And, uh, and so, you know, our outages very rarely look like um, scaling problems which I think is in the old days, a lot of what our outages used to look like. They were, the servers are falling over. We need to provision more servers. We need to get auto scaling working better. We need to get, you know, the um, the load balancers back in shape. Like that's, that's pretty rare to be our issues these days. These days, our issues are more around, um, you know, database migrations, which is a, a world that I think is still uh, in its infancy. Scale from an infrastructure standpoint has not been as challenging with this company. Uh, as I thought, scaling the rest of the company, you know, scaling the the non-engineering side has been incredibly challenging because that looks more like, um, you know, marketing and PR and uh, and sales and, 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 you know, is it founder-led sales? Is it like sales-led sales? Is it marketing-led sales? Is it product-led sales? When you're young, it's all of those things. That stuff's been pretty hard, pretty, pretty challenging for us. Um, 
And uh, and maybe I'm just standing on, on Cole's shoulders here actually a little bit and that he's just done such a great job uh, helping to do the architecture um, that, that I don't worry as much about the technical scaling as I used to. But I, I actually think uh, one, of the, one of the great things that's happened for startups is that we've gotten a lot of that initial architecture challenge off the table that used to really keep people out, you know, it used to cause the kinds of catastrophic outages that would kill companies early on. And now those happen later, I think. You know, you 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 have to grow pretty significantly before you hit the point where that scale starts to really get in your way. Um, and some SaaS companies, I think, will actually never hit it. Uh, you know, user numbers aren't in the billions generally with a with a with a B two B SaaS organization, and and you've got to get pretty big before you hit the edges of what built in infrastructure can handle. Or you're trying to do something like mitigate, manage your um, you know, your cost. Then, then you get in all kinds of challenging scale worlds. We're, we're luckily not in that state. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? This will sound sort of sort of silly and self-serving. I'm really proud of the retention rate of this product. That's such a that's such a like like product manager kind of an answer. I'm like I'm like I'm getting a performance cycle review, and I'm I'm proud of it. But I I really am. I think my when you're a tools builder, you're really close to your customers, um, especially you know working working at like Facebook on internal tools. You you see these people in person every day using your tools, and if they don't like it, you know you get to see the frowns and the frustration. And people are very open about the things that they dislike. I think you know I've, I've done some work in, in the consumer space as well, and the consumer space you don't actually get to get to see a lot of the reaction there's it's sort of all over the place it's a little disconnected from you you're kind of going you know world scale and you're not hearing emails back when things go badly they're just churning it's kind of a data point but in SaaS, it's very personal um, especially tooling it's just a very personal relationship with customers and they tell you every time they're unhappy um, and so when when i look at Kintaba, what i'm really happy with is just just how successful it's been at getting companies engaged in the process of incident management and keeping them there. Um, because I think so many companies have tried to do incident management and been unsuccessful. They've, they've, they've gone in, tried to roll it out. A couple people have adopted it. The culture didn't really take hold. The CTO didn't really get in. But, but I feel like this tool is really doing what we wanted it to do. It's propagating this culture of incident management, not just the tooling. And because of that, I think we're just seeing really interesting growth inside of our customers, like sort of growth across the organization, as well as retention in terms of continuous use of this process that was, you know, pretty new to a lot of customers who brought it on. So I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm really proud of that. And I think there's a, there's a big, interesting future for incident management. And it only happens if people can, can not only adopt it, but like maintain that day-to-day practice of it. And so I'm really, I'm really excited to see that happen with this product. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Things that we brought with us from our kind of earlier days of running companies and, and earlier days of, of working at, at unicorns like Facebook was sort of a penchant to ship really quickly. Right there's there's sort of sort of this idea of, of move fast and break things that's existed, you know, in the startup world for an awfully long time, 
And it, it, it really served the lean startup world well, right? Especially, especially back in like the early 2010s. Um, and in the early days of Kentaba, we brought that with us in a way that I don't think was super great for the company. Um, it let us get features out really fast, but our likelihood to, to cause breakage in other parts of the product due to rapid shipping were significantly higher than I would have liked them to be. You know, we talk about our own incidents internally, right? Like how many Sev ones are we having? We use Kentaba internally. Like in the early days, they, they really spiked. Um, and it took us a while to get comfortable with the fact that we needed to move just a little bit slower when we were building and shipping in the early days. Um, because again, mapping back to what I'd said earlier, where I said, you know, we wanted people to pay us straight out of the gate. We wanted to see that growth inside of the company straight out of the gate. Like those two boxes were checked. They aren't super compatible with, and the product becomes fragile, you know, at, at, at moments that the customer isn't expecting. And I think our early customers, you know, suffered a little bit with us more than they probably needed to, um, before we realized that there's there's safer ways to ship you know we needed to get our unit tests in order we needed to get our staging environments in order and properly testing we needed to get more um fallback and resiliency into our code and i think that that it it took us a little bit longer than i would have liked to admit that that was a problem not a feature of the company um and I think uh, I think figuring that out was hugely valuable for us and getting us into sort of a more resilient state, not just from a, you know, base code competency standpoint, but also from like a cross feature stability standpoint, um, which is a tough thing to measure when uh, when you're rolling out a tool that has a lot of sub features and a lot of capabilities, which we were shipping quickly, like measuring uh, stability across the product. You know, we had we had luckily like a little intercom widget in the corner where if things went badly, you could you could really yell directly at the team. You could say this isn't working, and we were we were all on the intercom threads, you know, managing it. Um, but you know, if I look back and I were doing it again, um, I think I would have put a little bit more attention towards, um, you know, making sure that the shipping process, the sort of release process, was better uh, managed from day one. Um, you know, how often do we ship? Is it predictable? When do we do the cut? You know, even things like that, I think, were, were could have been pretty easily put together early. But we were really wired to like, you know, old school lean startup, like ship it, just ship it, just push the button. Um, and it took us a little bit, I think, to get, a, get, get, our, get our heads back in the right spot there to make sure that, you know, we were shipping safely uh, each, each week, um, which is about, you know, we, we sometimes ship more than each week, but these days we ship about once a week, which is where we found the sweet spot. Well, what does the future look like for the product and for your team? I think you can look at incident management as a spectrum that could go one of two ways. To the right, you move deeper and deeper into the technical side of things, right? You get closer and closer to SRE, um, you start to become, you know, a more a more expansive reporting platform, um, you know, and, and technical platform for a smaller group of people in the company. Like I think that's that's like one direction it could go. Um, and I actually have, have seen some competitors kind of move in that space. Um, I, won't, I won't name names, uh, but I think like that's one version 
of, of what incident management becomes. We are, are wholly involved in the idea that there's a shift left opportunity for incident management, which is moving closer to the customer and the customer being our customer's customer, right? How do you pull incidents closer and closer to the reporting source, which is oftentimes the, the customer who tells you when something's going wrong in a way that it's never gone wrong before? And how do you involve more of the organization in the incident process so that they can benefit from it, not just the technical organization. So I get really happy when I see here have customers come to me and tell me, oh, you know, we used incident management the other week for, um, you know, for a, for a power outage at an office, you know, not, not because it took the site down, but because our employees were at risk and we wanted to make sure they were comfortable, but we're not sure if we can use Kentaba that way. And we'd come back and we'd say, of course you could, that's, that's the way you need to use it. This is incident management isn't actually a technical practice. It's, it's a human practice. And I think where Kentaba is most successful long-term is it becomes a natural tool for the entire organization to use that lives somewhere close to your sort of task and project management space. And just over the line where you say, these aren't planned things, these are unplanned, high importance tasks and actions we need to take to deal with a measurable critical situation. And if you describe it that way, suddenly it's relevant to sales, marketing, PR, legal, uh, uh, C-suite and engineering. And this is something we saw at Facebook work really well and that I really want to bring to the rest of the world. And the future for Kentaba looks like that to me. It looks like a company-wide tool that's valuable to everyone in the organization um, where incidents aren't, are, are being caught earlier and earlier for various types of practices. And it's just bringing resilience to everyone, not just resilience to your technical organization, but resilience to your PR organization, resilience to your sales organization. Um, I, I don't think that the process steps in incident management are unique to technical uh, folks. And I think that that's pretty, that's, that's the really interesting future that kind of got me into the space in the first place. And that I think remains our North Star. So, so John, it sounds like you're doing really interesting and different things. You're taking a different approach into, you know, the sort of industry of incident management, so to, so to speak. What I'm curious, what, what is the community like in, in that world? You know, how, how does the community uh, take shape form and what, what does that look like? So it's a, it's a very young and just forming community. Um, in fact, if you, if you stand in front of a room of, of folks from a company and you say, who here is involved in incident management? I don't think you'll see too many hands go up, right? It's sort of a strange question. It turns out though, if you ask that same room, who here has ever been a responder to an incident? Who here has ever had to deal with a major outage or a fire? Suddenly all the hands go up. Um, and so we, we actually noticed there wasn't really a way for these folks to come together. And we've been looking for ways to build this community and connect these people uh, more, more successfully. And so we, we're actually putting a conference together. It's called IRConf. Um, and it's really the first incident responder focused conference. And it's really cool. We're bringing folks in from, from, from industry, uh, you know, from companies like Honeycomb, like 1Password um, to come in and just talk about, you know, what do you do when things go badly? How do you manage it at your company? Um, we've got talks about it at scale. We've got talks about it from a cultural standpoint. Um, and it's really exciting. It's incident, uh, it's irconf.io 
Um, and uh, and it's April 1st. <laughs> it's not not an April Fool's Day joke actually happening. Um, but yeah, we, we we're really still looking for ways to bring that community together and, and get them connected because when a space like this is in its infancy, like finding the community and helping people feel like others are going through the same challenges they are is, is really just critical, right? Um, you want... Uh, you want this idea of every company is on fire, not just mine. The more that propagates, I think the more successful we'll all be at dealing with those fires. Well, let's switch to you, John. Who influences the way that you work? I'm a CEO, a CTO, an architect, really any person that you look up to and why. I've got some sort of traditional influencers. I mean, going through Y Combinator, folks like Paul Graham and and really the entire Y Combinator founder family who I who I stay very connected to has always been um, kind of a group of, of powerful influencers. I think, I think, you know, as it, as it ages, people look at Y Combinator in a different light than they used to. But for a long time, it was very much a disruption. It was very much a, a different attitude. It was the attitude that really anyone can figure out how to build companies and anyone can come into any space to apply their capabilities as long as they're intelligent, driven, um, and have technical capabilities. That was sort of the base, right? You, you need an engineer, everything else you can learn. Um, I still really believe that. Um, you know, coming into incident management, you know, building a B2B SaaS uh, startup like this to me felt like a bit of a reach as we started to plan it and then felt natural afterwards. We said, well, we'll figure it out. You know, we'll meet the right people, we'll build, we'll learn, and hopefully we'll be better for that. Um, CEOs who, who really influenced me, um, you know, folks like, uh, actually like Devin Finzer, over at OpenSea, um, which is which is a crypto startup, um, is, is is has always been a good friend and pretty influential on me. Um, you know, he he ran. People think of, of crypto and NFTs now as this big, you know, massive successful space, billions of dollars. OpenSea has raised all this money, but you know, we knew them really well back when it was something that no one cared about. You know, where where you would shop the idea of NFTs up and down Sand Hill Road for investment, and everyone would laugh you out the door. Um, but they held on, you know, and they held on really hard. And then they're now getting the spoils of that. And I think that that's incredible um, to be a CEO in a space that's unproven uh, and to just, you know, grip that thing tightly and say, this vision is going to come true. Uh, really, really amazing. And then and then the third CEO is uh, Guillermo over at Vercel, um, who's just done a fantastic job of being a community practitioner um, in a way that I wish I could be. You know, I watch the way that, that he interacts with his community and has helped to build and grow next uh, and, and ultimately Zeit, which became Vercel, um, is just, just incredible to me as a, as a, as a founder um, and has, has always been a, a powerful influencer. So, so those three folks have been, have been sort of influential in my day-to-day over the last you know, decade of my life. <laughs> we talked about a mistake earlier, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? I think if I could give, you know, advice to myself, I guess is, is sort of what that, that question is, right? Like, like back in the early days, um, I, I would, I would do a, a I, I would continue to push really hard on the idea of like avoiding fear. It's, it's really scary running a company. Um, founders don't get to talk about it much because there's, there's, there's a, a survivorship bias where no matter how scary it gets, 
if you're ultimately successful, you forget all the scary stuff, right? It's 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 uh, someone told me when we were having a child, there's a there's a biological imprint on parents where after like the first year, their minds start to erase everything that happened because if it didn't do that, people would never have more kids, right? If you didn't forget about all the really hard and hard stuff. Um, but startups, you know, especially if you're if you're new to the space, you know, I don't I don't come from a you know, from a from a, a line of, of of high tech startup founders, right? I mean, this was very a very new space to me, and the idea of bringing on money from other people, potentially losing it, you know, really kept me up at night. Uh, still does keep me up at night. But the really great founders, the really great companies, are able to focus on the fact that your goals for what you're building are far more valuable and interesting than the money and being afraid of the money or being afraid of spending it or being afraid of losing can really uh, uh, paralyze you. I mean, I've seen it in other founders. I've seen it myself, especially in, in my in my first company in terms of like fear of, of, of loss and fear of failure. Um, and so I'd take bigger bets in, in all cases and everything I've ever done. I would take the bet that I was making and I would 10 exit. I would say, you know, in the early days of building out uh, Caffeinated Mind, which did the high-speed data transport, you know, when we were trying to build into the media industry, I'd say, well, what would it have taken to go and build and become high-speed data transport for five industries, not 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 like one and a half? Um, and I try to do that today in terms of, of incident management, which is, you know, how do we not just be for SRE? How do we be for everyone? And so I, I would pull that back as far as I could to as early state as early days as I could. Um, and and make make more and more aggressive uh, actions because if it if it doesn't work, you're better off not working when you're shooting for the highest moon you can find, you know, than you are you know falling apart when you never really even took the biggest stab you could have at it. Well, last question, John. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? As you come into this space, <laughs> as you're like entering into it in terms of the thing you've built, bringing it to the world, you need to, you need to take it as a given that the way you're going to learn as a builder is by being wrong. And it means that you're going to have to be wrong a lot. And it's okay that the things you're building right now might not hit the way you want them to what's critical is that you learn from what they've what from from the bits of success inside of that and then you find ways to aggressively leverage it right that's that's what you want to do you know we, we talk about how vcs operate right they operate in this idea that they make 40 investments and only one needs to work right because if the one works that outsized success takes everything else down founders need to kind of operate the same way you need to be able to make large numbers of small bets inside of your large vision. And when you find the one that kind of sticks, leverage it to get that thousand X return on it so that your bigger vision actually reaches the goals that you're trying to reach. Um, you know, I meet a lot of founders early on who are overly subscribed to a very discreet part of a larger vision. And because of it, they, they disappear very quickly. They come in, that discrete test doesn't really hit the way they wanted it to. And they say, okay, this large vision is impossible. And they move on, you know, and do something else. They get a job somewhere else. Um, 
you know, I think I think that's critical feedback that founders don't often get in the early days. We often get the kind of fail fast idea, but it's very rarely put in the context of you want to fail fast on small things as aggressively as possible. Just make sure you really believe in the big vision that you're trying to work towards so that you can get that, um, you know, that outsized benefit from when you make it successful. It's kind of a weird way to phrase it, but I think that that's 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 sort of the the advice I'd want to be given. Um, I think that's what I'd sort of, I'd tell uh, another founder as well. That's great advice. Well, John, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Kintaba. Great, thanks. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.